As noted above, money printing only, quote, works if the majority of people don't realize that it is steadily devaluing their earnings and savings. People must be deceived into believing a false ideology about this practice, but that can only work for so long. As we've seen throughout history, bad money doesn't last forever. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we have got some... Uh, a great read. There have actually been a lot of great reads on a BitcoinMagazine.com. Um, uh, they've been really killing it recently. And uh, this, I've actually got a couple that I want to cover, um, but I don't want to do them back to back. So uh, we'll spread them out a little bit. But right now there is one by Nick Hoffman, who is uh, Nick Can't Mine on Twitter. You should definitely be following him if you are not. Um, really cool guy and is always putting out a lot of cool stuff like BTC Kindergarten and all that, uh, all that jazz. I'll link to uh, everything so you can check him out. Um, but we're going to get into his read today. A great piece talking about just the nature of money. And it is titled Lies, Deception, and Unnatural Money. Just as soon as I was getting into it, I was like, oh, this one's on the show. But before we get into it, a huge thank you to Hexel Wallet for supporting Bitcoin Audible. Check them out at hexawallet.io. They are a really great feature-rich mobile wallet. They start you off with a test account with test BTC, so you can get familiar with it if you've never used one before. They've got a checking and a multi-factor savings account for different degrees of security. They've got a really clever uh, backup system where you can lean on your contacts and other devices so that you never have to worry about losing your keys. Custom fee settings, built-in batching, just a really cool wallet. Check them out at hexawallet.io and shoot them a thanks on my behalf for supporting Bitcoin Audible. So let's go ahead and jump into today's read, again by Nick Hoffman. Who is Nick Can't Mine on Twitter, and it is titled Lies, Deception, and Unnatural Money. Quote It is well enough that the people of the nation do not understand our banking and monetary system, for if they did, I believe there would be a revolution before tomorrow morning. Henry Ford. The continued functioning of the financial system you have lived under for your entire life is dependent on the average person not understanding exactly how it works. And there are many reasons for this. As you read deeper and deeper into this article, I hope that you will realize how deceiving our money really is. Governments and banks lie to you and take advantage of you every single day. Most people just don't realize it. The money you use to save your value or purchase goods and services is unnatural. It is the equivalent of man-made garbage that you'd throw away in a second if you understood it better and had a viable alternative to opt into instead. I was always told growing up that the financial system was broken and that it doesn't work properly, but that there were no good solutions to its problems. While most agree that the system is unfair, I wanted to find out what about it is broken exactly, and I did. But I also found that because the entire financial system is broken for the vast majority of people, that means it's working just as intended. What makes money valuable? Money is a fundamental aspect of our daily lives that touches almost everything we do. But the vast majority of people aren't taught everything they should know about the history of money and how it works. So what are people generally taught about money? At most, they are usually taught some basic Keynesian economic principles, which emphasize governments and central banks while de-emphasizing the sovereignty of their constituents. Keynesian economics are macroeconomic philosophies that developed in the wake of the Great Depression, but have resulted in an unfair system that most people don't understand, even if they live under it. 
But here is some truth about what really makes money valuable. Good money typically has six main characteristics. Durability, portability, divisibility, uniformity, scarcity, a limited supply, and acceptability. Each one of these characteristics plays a key role in the value that a certain form of money can provide, with all different forms of traditional money having trade-offs. All effective monetary media throughout history have possessed some combination of these qualities, but not all. Historical forms of money include gold, silver, stones, seashells, glass beads, and more. These tools were used as money because they fulfilled a certain role in a given society, typically in either storing value or facilitating exchange. Money is a universal tool used by everyone to exchange value for goods and or services. It is an asset that requires certain characteristics to be functional in exchange. If someone is using money without most of these characteristics, then it is bad money. The U.S. dollar, for instance, is not durable. It has an unlimited supply, it's not very divisible, and doesn't have solid uniformity. You can use just about anything people deem as having any value as money, but there are long-term, harsh consequences to using bad money, such as wealth evaporation. Good money comes and goes, and has always served a particular role in its given society. But over time, historically, good money has often become bad money, as a society shifted to a better form of money. Money has evolved over time adapting to its surroundings and technology. With enough time having passed, we've seen new good money turn to bad money and ultimately fail time and time again. So you may be asking yourself, if these characteristics are what make good money, then how can good money turn to bad money and fail? Money printing is inevitable. Quote, the root problem with conventional currency is all the trust that's required to make it work. The central banks must be trusted not to debase the currency, but the history of fiat currencies is full of breaches of that trust. Satoshi Nakamoto, 2009 History has proven that if humans are able to print money, they will. Everyone wants a shortcut, and nobody can be trusted with this power, as history has demonstrated. It's been estimated that during the time of the Civil War, about one-third of all the money in circulation was counterfeit. And today, counterfeiting is still rampant. Zero Hedge reported earlier this year that a Chinese gold processor was behind a scandal involving 83 tons of fake gold bars, which would account for 4.2% of the country's total gold reserves in 2019. There have been many different examples of money printing throughout time, resulting from cycles of human greed that lead to lies, deception, and unnatural money. Whether it be counterfeiting banknotes, gold bars, or even glass beads, people will always try to get an unfair edge over others. If you were to print money for little to no cost, quickly or over long periods of time, you end up devaluing everyone else's hard-earned money. But since it costs you little to nothing to produce, you aren't losing any wealth. You are just stealing it from everybody else. This same reasoning applies to, quote, legitimate money printing. Not just counterfeiting, but governmental money production. And then becomes a function that is dependent on the people not realizing that their wealth is deteriorating. Inflation stems from money printing, the same process that is known as counterfeiting. It's unnatural, man-made intervention that screws up everything in an otherwise natural free market. Money printing is unnatural. Now that we know what makes good money and that money printing is inevitable and inflationary, let's take a look at the root cause of the failure of all previous forms of good money. If we look at the characteristics that make good money, there is one that stands out among the rest. I'm talking, of course, 
about scarcity, or the enforcement of a limited supply, which is critical in making good money and simultaneously something that is constantly being undermined by greedy people who find a way to exploit the system. Quote, Deception is an act or statement which misleads, hides the truth, or promotes a belief, concept, or idea that is not true. According to Wikipedia, it is often done for personal gain or advantage. As noted above, money printing only, quote, works if the majority of people don't even realize that it is steadily devaluing their earnings and savings. People must be deceived into believing a false ideology about this practice, but that can only work for so long. As we've seen throughout history, bad money doesn't last forever. The people who were deceived also pay for the consequences that bad money causes. One of the most impactful stories of how money printing ruined a society involves the rye stones on the island of Yap. These giant limestones were used as money there and stored a family's value for generations. These stones were very difficult to produce, so the bigger the stone, the more value it had, with some stones larger than a fully grown human. As Saifedean Amus described in the Bitcoin Standard, the island of Yap thrived until Irishman David O'Keefe immigrated there and saw the immense opportunity to mass-produce these stones using iron tools. The key here was that O'Keefe was able to make these stones at a quicker rate and to make them smaller, making them more transportable. Over time, the rye stone market was so flooded that the stones became worthless and the value held by the islanders was wiped out. Effects of Government Money Printing one of the most recent examples of the devastating effects of money printing happened in 2019, when the Venezuelan Bolivar experienced hyperinflation of some 2 million percent, destroying the wealth of the country. Venezuela was once South America's richest country, until it started going down a slippery slope via corrupt leaders with deceiving, flawed, and socialist ideologies. The country's death knell was put into motion when President Nicolas Maduro was voted into office. Maduro appealed to many voters because of his socialist policies, knowingly deceiving his target audience. Once Maduro was elected, the money-printing press ran hot, while deficit spending rose astronomically. The wealth of the country vanished as the once richest country in Latin America became the poorest. The public was taken advantage of for Maduro's ideological gain and was ultimately punished, with many no longer being able to afford to eat. The destruction of Venezuela's national currency transformed the country into a totally failed state. Since the government has full control over the boulevard, they are able to force people to get paid at the official exchange rate, which is significantly less than it is on the unmanipulated black market stopping the citizens from having any hope of saving their wealth or getting ahead, while benefiting the government by keeping hold over its citizens. This horrible aftermath of money printing is not unique to this specific case. As you study the aftereffects of other hyperinflated currencies, it becomes apparent that the results are always the same. You're being blatantly lied to. Quote, the CPI is deliberately designed to understate and mask the inflation that the Federal Reserve is creating. Peter Schiff Inflation silently steals our wealth from right under us, and yet governments and central banks can't even be truthful to tell us about it. But how do we calculate and know what the inflation rate is? We find out through something called the Consumer Price Index, CPI. According to the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, CPI is a measure of the average change over time in the price paid by urban consumers for a market basket of consumer goods and services – food, housing, clothes, transport, medical care, recreation, and education. This bureau implies that CPI is calculated simply, but it's actually extremely complicated. 
on the Bureau's website, you can download a PDF file with its methods of calculation. The only problem is that it's a whopping 107 pages long. And to think it calculates just one simple and fundamental problem, the degree to which the money that you have today will be devalued by tomorrow. The main goal for the Bureau of Labor Statistics seems not to be solving this problem, but to be jumping through loopholes and twisting and turning things until it gets a low enough number to report to the public. Even as real inflation goes up due to money printing, the government may say that there was 0% inflation for that year because the government calculates inflation by a CPI, which allows it to jump through loopholes to get a certain number most appealing to the public. A huge consequence of actual inflation means that your dollar is purchasing less and less every year, while you end up getting taxed more because of CPI. Then the government bumps you up into a new tax bracket, in which you are now taxed at a higher percentage of your income and end up taking home less value than before. It lies about the inflation rate for political gain, and it saves the government money while stealing from the citizens. Bitcoin fixes this. Humanity cannot advance forward unless we solve the problem of money printing. And Bitcoin actually fixes this. Bitcoin has all of the qualities of money as mentioned in What Makes Money Valuable above, unlike all previous forms of money before, which have either lacked these qualities or failed to retain them. Durability isn't a problem for Bitcoin, as it's completely digital money that can't be destroyed or withered like paper money or gold. Bitcoin is extremely portable and can be stored or transferred anywhere in the world with ease, as it is not bound to border restrictions. You can send money to anyone in the world no matter where you are, with it arriving safely and quickly. Bitcoin is the most divisible form of money humanity has ever experienced. Whereas the US dollar is divisible into 100 pennies at most, one Bitcoin is divisible into 100 million units called Satoshis, or SATs for short. Bitcoin has strong uniformity, as each unit is essentially the same as all others. Bitcoin is accepted by more and more people all over the world every day. We've seen a large increase in people, small businesses, and large institutions that have come to accept Bitcoin as money since it was introduced. And lastly, the Bitcoin supply is capped at 21 million. As mentioned above and as a result, it has a finitely limited supply. Historically, money printing was inevitable, but not anymore. Everyone abides by the rules of the network, enforced by the nodes and miners, which keep everyone else honest and prevent anyone from ever increasing the supply cap, ever. You can look at historical forms of good money as having a set of rules that the system is based on, until someone comes in and cheats the system for selfish gain. That money created by the cheater is unnatural and ruins the game. Bitcoin fixes this because everyone and anyone is capable of running a full node to maintain their own exact copy of the Bitcoin ledger, which keeps everyone honest and prevents bad actors, especially when the nodes and miners are financially incentivized to do so. Bitcoin is superior money compared to hyperinflatable currency. It doesn't bear the same problems that have come with forms of money in the past, and it prevents the issues mentioned above from happening again. History has shown that humanity has thrived when society had hard money, and the impacts of a currency that can never be hyperinflated look very promising. It has the potential to usher in a new renaissance or industrial revolution. And last but not least, the Bitcoin network will never lie to you. It is open source, meaning you can look at the code yourself for free, right down to every last detail. Bitcoin is an open ledger that lets you become your own bank and the master of your money. With Bitcoin, you take back the power from the corrupted people you are blindly trusting.
This is a guest post by Nick Hoffman. Opinions expressed are entirely his own and do not necessarily reflect those of Bitcoin, uh, BTC Incorporated, or Bitcoin Magazine. Well, they do reflect my opinions. <laughs> so this was a great piece. A uh, huge thank you to Nick Cantmine on Twitter uh, for writing up this piece. And there's actually a, a number of other really great pieces. Uh, I'll actually link to his like official page on Bitcoin Magazine so you can... Uh, Check out his Bitcoin Reddit roundups uh, where he goes uh, month by month and really kind of collects a, a ton of links and events that have happened. It's actually a pretty good resource to kind of go through and be like, so what happened in August? Um, so uh, this one's probably a good to have in like your collection of links if you're like me and you, uh, you have a running database of all of the things that you think of as important in Bitcoin uh, saved somewhere because uh, this is kind of that resource. But again, this was uh, just a great article by him and hit so many awesome points just on like kind of the fundamentals of money. And I, re I really, really want to get into this because I think there's some really key uh, points and uh, things to add to uh, some of the things that he was saying here that I think are really cool. Before we do that, though, let's talk a little bit about HexaWallet. Um, I'm really excited. They've got a Keeper app coming soon that's actually going to work as a two-factor and uh, like as the second factor uh, to a both like your savings app and stuff, but also as a way to easily keep um, partial backups of your own keys. But Hexa Wallet, as I said earlier in the show, is a really great mobile wallet. It's privacy focused. They're never going to ask you for your information. You don't have an account with Hexa. It's totally non-custodial. You are holding your own keys. And the backup system is really clever, so it's not, it, it is seedless. You don't have to remember, uh, write down 24 words and, you know, be afraid that you might lose them. Instead, you can use a few of your contacts and other locations to keep pieces of your backup so that you can always restore it later. But no single place puts you at risk of theft. It's a really cool setup. Um, and if you want to check it out, go to hexawallet.io or go to the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. It is both up there and they love feedback because uh, they want to make this the best mobile wallet out there. A big thanks to Hexa for supporting Bitcoin Audible. So let's dig into this article. Um, uh, so lies, deception and unnatural money. Love that title. That's just a really good title. I got to say it's catchy, right? Like you look at the title and you're like, oh, shit. I think I'm going to have to read this one. Kudos to Nick for that one. Um, <laughs> but uh, so he starts off this section, what gives money its value? And he hits the, on the characteristics of, uh, you know, the, the general characteristics. And I would say, well, I mean, depending who, on who you're reading, there's typically anywhere between five and seven critical characteristics of money. Here he hits uh, six. So durability, portability, divisibility, Uniformity, which is fungibility in you know some other context, scarcity and acceptability. Another one that's often thrown in here as the seventh is verifiability. Now these things are what discern, or or what you would delineate between a good money and a bad money is how well does it fulfill these roles and sustain or I guess defend these characteristics. Like how how well does uh, is an adversary able to eliminate these things? And how well does it independently uh, uh, prove that it has these characteristics? So like in the example of gold being a great currency or silver being a great currency is that you can easily verify it. And um, if you can verify it, well, then you can know when somebody has cheated it. Um, just like he talked about in the example is that, you know, 4.2% of the gold uh, from this Chinese mint somewhere um, uh, reported by Zero Hedge, 4.2% of their of the amount of gold that they had was counterfeit. Even though gold and silver are some of the most easily verifiable metals, um, uh, monetary metals, it's still very hard to you know you have to break the thing open, you have to drill into all of them, which really screws up the you know it's it's incredibly costly to validate. Um, to verify that it is actual gold versus silver. And that's why counterfeit gold bars or counterfeit gold coins and uh, things of the like make it into circulation and stay there for so long. You know, usually they'll just like scratch off like a little bit of a corner or whatever so they don't ruin the coin um, uh, and just test a small piece of it in purity. 
where they just weigh it and trust the mint, you know, trust the stamp on the coin itself, you know, verify that it is exactly the stamp of the, you know, whatever institution, and oh, okay, I can trust the Canadian mint or whatever, which kind of defeats the purpose of using a monetary gold, but um, whatever, or a monetary metal. But again, that's what compares one money to another. There is also another type of the value that money has that he doesn't actually talk about. And what gives money its value for, let's say we have a good money. Why is the money valuable? It's production. It is the capital goods available in the economy. This is what we talk about in Deeper Down the Rabbit Hole, the article with Knutz von Holm, um, uh, which is a great article if you haven't listened to it. Um, he talks about how the only reason anything, any medium of exchange would have value is because of what you can exchange for it. So a good money is one that has these characteristics. is durable, portable, divisible, uh, uniform, scarce, acceptable, and verifiable. But the reason it has any value is because of what can be exchanged for it, because of the production that it allocates. It is the things produced, the services available to exchange with that currency. I've said it numerous times on this show and you know, kind of explained in other articles and things that we've read, money is just a proxy. What those characteristics give is a brilliant independent system of accounting money isn't value in itself the money itself you can't do anything with the money like the the island of yap couldn't do anything with the actual stones in fact it did nothing with them but exchange them same with paper bills you can't do anything with the cotton like like what are you gonna wipe your butt a hundred is no different than a one the money itself is of no value here but what it enables is a society-wide, independent accounting system to tally for the movement of other value, of real value in the economy. So just in the idea of like having money, we could each have a billion dollars. But if we're all naked and dirt poor and you know living just in a prairie and there's just one bucket of water to trade for, all those billions of dollars are only worth split up that one bucket of water. That's the, whole, that's the whole value of everything in the world is the one bucket of water because it's the only capital goods that we have and we're all completely poor and destitute otherwise. And it doesn't matter if we have a trillion dollars, a billion dollars, a quadrillion dollars. It's still only all collectively worth the one bucket of water. That is why Venezuela can have tens of trillions quadrillions of bolivars in circulation, but they destroy the foundation of the very system that produces capital goods, all their capital goods vanish, all their cows, all their food, all their health care, everything collapses because the foundation of their ability to communicate that value, which creates a society, dies, and now all the money in the world is worth jack shit. So those characteristics that make a good money are what define a good proxy to protect value that existed somewhere else in space and time. It's about maintaining the scarcity and the characteristics of the value that I produced yesterday so that I can carry it into the future and the accounting system does not dilute my share of what was created. That's the whole point of it. That is the entirety of the reason it emerges in society, and it is the reason society exists. It's the reason we can trade between tens of thousands of people who we have no idea, and we do not know them, we do not care of them, and in all other contexts, we may hate them. We might not like their religion. We might not like their political views. All the other things about them might just be stupid people. But if we use money, we can independently trust the proxy by which we communicate and they can go build their thing, and I build my thing, and we trade, and we don't have to like each other for any other reasons. Cultural barriers are everywhere. Language barriers are everywhere. There are a thousand, there are a billion, check that, a thousand, what kind of an underestimate is that? There are a billion shallow, stupid reasons not to like another person. That makes it incredibly hard to scale society, because you just simply can't trust somebody that you don't know. 
But if you can both trust an independent proxy for the value that you've produced both in the past and for the value that will be produced in the future, you can cooperate. You can get along. You can work together despite all the other reasons you may have to not do so. Now that means as a tool to bridge gaps in trust, this is why it wasn't until we had a solid widespread sound money that we all lived in tribes, that we lived in small families, that, you know, we maxed out quote unquote society at Dunbar's number, 150, you know, 200 people. We didn't have a technology that could bridge the fact that we can't relate to more than that many people at once. The human mind can't, uh, can't deal with the number of relationships and connections in a group of 500 people. You immediately start separating into clans and then you are at war with each other unless you have a technology to bridge those gaps. That is what money does. So that means that any money, any monetary tool dependent on a single institution is necessarily a bad or lower value money because it requires trust in that institution. So necessarily the people who do not trust it, which are going to be there, period. No, there's no way to, for that not to be the case. To them, it's the worst money you could possibly use. To those who do trust them, it's great money. Therefore, it cannot be a money that unifies disparate groups or cultures. It specifically could only work within political barriers, not across them because it is money within a political system. I'm obviously referring to government money here. Now, the one characteristic of money, like uh, when he gets into talking about like kind of the history of the money, and I love that he brings up Yap. Yap is like one of my favorite freaking stories about the history of money, and I think it's the perfect allegory for Bitcoin and how it works. Um, such a fascinating story if you haven't heard it. I, I guess I'll give you kind of the nutshell version um, I've covered it many times on the show, but it's actually been quite a while, I think, at this point. But before I get into it, so he talks about the incentives to destroy money and what makes a bad money, or, or excuse me, what makes a good money become a bad money. And that's because it cannot defend itself against an adversary. Is that the system of money, or as he says, the quote-unquote rules, as we can imagine, every, every uh, money, monetary asset, is essentially a set of rules. Gold being a very difficult to cheat rules. It's, it's like, how do you, if you can um, easily verify the gold, you know, the rules are this many atoms or, or this many uh, uh, neutrons, this many protons, and, you know, this, this atomic weight. Those are the rules of gold, and that is what makes gold scarce and easily verifiable because that, those specific atomic traits um, produce a metal that is very specific, very easy to identify, extremely stable, doesn't corrode, uh, malleable, like, you know, has all these great characteristics that gives it those six or seven characteristics prior to that making it, making it a good money. That's why it became the first global money. But how does a money fail? It's not very often because of a loss of all those other characteristics. It's usually not because it's like not divisible enough that, oh, we I can't use that one anymore. Um, or, oh, we had, you know, hyperinflation because it was super not portable. A great example of this is actually the Yap, uh, actually the rye stones on the Yap Islands. Uh, and this is because they were completely not portable. They almost invariably just sat in one place. Um, and we'll get to that in just a second. I'll, I'll just kind of explain for those who don't know. Um, but it's always always the scarcity that destroys a money. Maybe this isn't 100% true, but it's 99.9999% true. Just like Nick Campmine says, um, or, or Nick Hoffman says uh, further down this article, is that is the one that is invariably the most difficult to defend, the most difficult to prove and verify, etc., etc. And why? It's because as a proxy for value, if you can cheat the money, it's like being able to cheat the accounting system of a business and give yourself all of the value that the business owns without having to produce any of the work, any of the products, do anything of value to anyone or for any reason. It is the ultimate power 
in a world where we are totally dependent on each other in an economic cooperative society. You know, the economy is the means to all of our ends. All of our dreams are impossible without the economy. I can't, you know, you can't become famous without an economy. You can't, you, you, nobody's going to be an actor if they also have to build their house, uh, make their food, grow, you know, the animals and the plants that they eat. Um, like if you have to do everything yourself, it's only because you can be an actor and you can have somebody else, you can just buy food from a place that literally cooks it and sits it in front of you. All they buy it from somebody who cleans and packages uh, the meat and they get the meat from someone who uh, nurtures and raises the cattle and those the people who raise the cattle buy the food to feed them from someone who grows and cultivates the plants and then they grow the plants by using massive machinery which they buy from manufacturers that design and put together extraordinarily historically insane contraptions built for a tightly specific purpose that does the job of 200 men in a tenth of the time and they designed those things by using engineers who meticulously studied those designs and aspects of physics that run these machines and understood the processes that could be used to cultivate food. And then they take their value that they're paid and they go out and enjoy a night at the theater when they're tired, which is why actors exist. All of this is unequivocally dependent on the role of money. Money as the tool to bridge all of that chaos and communicate the value against people who could not do any of those other jobs individually. Otherwise, the entire structure falls apart and all of our abundance vanishes into thin air. To start screwing with the money is like haphazardly cutting out huge chunks of our own DNA like it's not going to matter. And then you get thousands of different types of cancers and your face starts to melt off and the politicians act like, oh, this is surprising. I don't know, I don't know how to put it. Except that society as we know it only exists because of money. And when you start talking about just pretending it doesn't have a role that we're just going to print ourselves into prosperity is to destroy the very system that enables prosperity so that we can really quickly shuffle the shit that we still have to different people. Of course, chosen politically, which we always know is the honest and unbiased way to do things. It's a paragon of moral integrity. I hope I don't have to explain that that's a joke. <laughs> so where do currencies fail? Where does money fail? When someone decides or figures out that they can fudge the numbers and they can get something, or hell, everything, for nothing. And of course they would want to cover up that that's what they're doing. And that's where you get 107 pages to define the CPI. But I'll actually come back to that. I want to talk about Yap really quick, just because I think this is the perfect allegory for Bitcoin, and I love it. If you've heard it, bear with me. Uh, you should probably hear it again anyway. Um, but the rye stones were, were limestone. They were huge limestone circles, like disks, essentially, on this island. And the reason they were scarce is because they, A, they you know, didn't have uh, you know, highly advanced tools uh, to work with. Um, and then in addition, the limestone wasn't natively on the island. It was on a neighboring island, which means that they would have to travel to it and come back. So there was enormous cost. I mean, you know, to have one of these stones was proof of work. You know, you know hint, hint, wink, wink. Essentially, they were the most counterfeit proof thing that they could use in their society to store value. But here's the brilliant thing. They didn't even move. They just sat around. It was just an accounting system where you couldn't add crap to the ledger without a whole freaking ton of work. So it made more sense just to operate within the ledger, i.e. trade for one of the stones that was already on the island. And then, like I say, you know, money is equal to the capital goods of everything in society, um, everything in the society that trades with it. So all you all you had to do the easier thing to do rather than going and bothering with you know taking a ship out and uh, getting a whole bunch of stone trying to carve it up and then haul it all the way back and you know hope you didn't uh, sink your boat uh, on the way back in 
I'll come back in, plop it off somewhere. Like, well, shit, I'll just raise a couple of cattle. That's a whole lot easier, right? And then I'll trade for a stone. And of course, you've made society wealthier because you've added to the capital goods. There were, there were 100 cattle before, and now there's 104 because you raised four cattle. The money is worth four cattle more than it was. So how did they exchange these things if they just sat around? They would just announce it. And this is the coolest thing. This is why the Rhystones are literally the, the first example of a public ledger of a Bitcoin-like currency is they didn't move any of it. It was just a verifiable thing on a ledger that was held in everybody's minds. And if they traded, you know, like let's say there's a, there's, oh, there's a great Rhystone on the hill east of town. You, uh, I would trade it for your four cattle and then we would go to the town square and because our society is small and like culturally uh, uniform and we know everybody, we can just yell out and be like, okay, the rhinestone on the hill east of town now belongs to uh, this guy because he just gave me four cattle and everybody just updates their mental ledger as to who owns what and everybody knows that I can't give that stone to somebody else. I just gave it away. Now I have four cattle. It was literally a public broadcast digital ledger in people's heads of who owned what piece of money. And the money was verifiable. You could just go look at it. But it didn't actually need to exist. It just needed to be verifiable. That's why if you can get the same guarantees or better in just a digital ledger, well, then you've done the exact same thing. And this worked for centuries. This worked for like five centuries. It's like half a millennia that this was a great money for their society, and it was sustained. Until, of course, it became no longer scarce. David O'Keefe comes in, and uh, they've got huge, you know, ships from Europe. They've got stone making. They've got all sorts of metal tools and advanced things to work with. And they see that everybody's got all these, that everybody's using all these stones. I don't have to come in and produce anything. It's super easy. To produce a stone. So whereas the one guy was like, okay, well, you know, raising four cattle is a whole lot easier than going to go get the stone. Well, for David, it's like, no, we can go just get a crap ton of these stones, make them real quick, bring them back, plop them off, and we'll take this whole island's cattle. And now they've got twice the money and none of the cattle. And what's the money worth? What capital goods exist within the society? They got no cattle. They've got nothing else. The English or the, the excuse me, the Irish come in and buy all of their capital goods by just creating new stones, well, then now none of the stones are worth anything because they don't have any capital goods. They just got wiped out by someone who cheated the money. Every time you hear about the government printing money or printing debt or uh, running a deficit, that is, what hap that is what is happening. They are buying up all of the capital goods and using up all of the labor, all of the resources, all of the engineering, all of the food, for their purposes and putting worthless pieces of paper in their place. Now, why would they do that? Because it's cost them nothing. Well, they don't even put worthless pieces of paper in their place now. They're literally just printing points into a piece of into a computer database. I mean, Jesus, at least if money grew on trees, you'd have to grow a tree. This is even worse than that. I use an analogy that if money grew on trees, uh, well, then we would call them leaves and we would rake them up into piles and we would set them on fire. Money wouldn't be money. It would be leaves because we know exactly what it is worth to have something that grows on trees and by the millions, they're called leaves and we hate them. Well, generally, maybe they look pretty. And here's the crazy thing. Bitcoin solves this. And it doesn't like a little bit solves this. It it truly, in a way that has never before been possible in history, solves this for good. In Nick's analogy that a money can be thought of simply as the rules that define the money, Bitcoin is defined because it's a network, because it is a cryptographic network and an open ledger. The only way you can define that you are on its network versus something else is to verify the rules. It is simply a network that requires 
operation by a set of rules in order to be on the network. So anybody can freely change the rules however they want, but they're no longer connected to the network. It's as if anybody who ever changed the money, anybody who ever altered the purity of their gold bar, even the slightest bit, was just evicted from society. And nobody even had to do anything. It's simply that they didn't exist in the same plane anymore. If you are running a Bitcoin node, you aren't verifying that you have a Bitcoin or that someone sends you a Bitcoin. You are verifying all Bitcoin in existence from the very beginning of the Bitcoin protocol up to the current state. With no ambiguity whatsoever, no counterfeit gold bars here, no fake coins, no money printing, no dollar bills that you're not sure about. If you are on the Bitcoin network holding your own keys, running a full node, you have monetary assurances. You have a monetary guarantee that has never existed before in the history of mankind. That is insane. And it has all those other characteristics, simply because it's digital. And one could argue that the, the biggest risk is that, you know, governments will make it not fungible because they can tag certain Bitcoin as bad and certain Bitcoin as good. Um, and uh, that certainly is a, a potential problem. But the Bitcoin network itself, it can't be put into the rules. And that's the beauty of it, is that Bitcoin still cannot care. So it's only those within the jurisdiction that have to even care that that's happening. And I feel like in a, in a grander sense and on a longer time scale, it only destroys the jurisdiction rather than the money. Because every new coin that's listed as a bad coin just leaves the jurisdiction and goes to one where they just let Bitcoin decide. Because Bitcoin is always going to confirm the transaction. Bitcoin doesn't care within the network, within the rules of the network, unquestionably, the coins are completely uniform. I mean, there is nothing that distinguishes one coin from another um, other than its signature, and that's just who owns it. But the coins themselves don't really even exist. Again, it's just a set of transactions and a set of rules that govern how they can actually update. What could be more portable? What could be more divisible? Not only can you break it down into a hundred millionth of a coin right now, but you can indefinitely continue to break it down. In fact, you know, supposedly uh, in 2140-ish, uh, uh, we will run out of halvings, right? Like the Bitcoin network will no longer be producing new Bitcoin uh, and will be as close to 21 million as we can ever get. Well, that's not necessarily true. If we feel like we can divide it further, like let's say one Satoshi buys like a dollar's worth of stuff, well, maybe we need smaller units. Well, it's just a digital ledger and smaller units aren't necessarily within the rules. So we can just add eight more decimal places and keep going. It would be a soft fork. Might take a while to do the upgrade, particularly after 100 years adding nodes. But for all intents and purposes, Bitcoin is infinitely divisible. and that's not even been the real problem of money in the past. The problem of money is what Venezuela has suffered from, what Argentina has suffered from, what every political system in the history of the world almost unanimously has suffered from, the counterfeiting and the cheating of the monetary tool to be able to extract value from society without producing anything. And Bitcoin solves that completely. That is why people call this thing a revolution. Because it is. And, and he talks about how, you know, this is potentially a new renaissance or a new industrial revolution. I think it's both. I think when we get on the other side of this thing and look back, this right now will be one of the greatest shifts in all of human history. We are living through it right now. And it's not just Bitcoin. It's that Bitcoin is an extension of the internet. The internet is this shift. The internet is like the language layer of society gone super saiyan. And, oh God, you, there's my inner nerd. Um, and Bitcoin is the monetary layer gone super saiyan. 
the internet is already massively changing the world as we sit here and witness it. And Bitcoin is going to accelerate this tenfold. And as psychotic and crazy as it is, we get to see it. We get to live through it. Crazy time to be alive, guys. All right, let's close this out. Huge thank you to Nick Hoffman. Uh, great article. Um, also, Bitcoin Magazine, of course. Always just a wonderful resource in this space. Uh, don't forget to check out or follow uh, Nick Can't Mine on Twitter. That's our boy. Have all the links in the show notes and jazz so you can check it out. Much love to our sponsor, Hexa Wallet, uh, for creating such a wonderful Bitcoin mobile wallet, non-custodial, and for supporting this show, the best in Bitcoin made audible. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode and don't forget to share it out with anyone and everyone you know in Bitcoin or uh, people you think that are just coming into the space or asking you about it. It's getting crazy out there. Bull runs getting started. And this is the perfect time to tell that person that you know that's curious about it, about Bitcoin, and tell them about Bitcoin Audible, where they can learn about all of it. And of course, if you want to support the show and become a Satoshi's Audio Knot, you can become a patron at patreon.com slash the crypto economy. Look me up. Uh, it's as little as $1 a month and you become knighted in the army of the audio knots. And until you do, you're just an audio knot. So you fail and you get to come hang out with us. You get to hang out with an awesome crew in the Telegram chat. That's the lowest price you could possibly pay to get knighted with such a profound honor and become one of Satoshi's chosen warriors. And I got a big announcement coming up soon. I'm really excited about it. Uh, so follow me on Twitter at The Crypto Economy or at Bitcoin Audible. It's coming this week and I am super excited. The future is ahead of us and there is so much exciting stuff to share. Let's get back to natural money. Let's solve the lies and deceptions at the foundations of our political systems and build a future worth hoping for. I am Guy Swan. This is Bitcoin Audible. And until next time, take it easy, guys. This has been a 111 production, and you were listening to Bitcoin Audible on the Crypto Economy Network.